Nitro all night. Uh-huh. We rock, 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 we rock. Okay. We rock, 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 we rock. With who? We rock, rock, rock with the flock. With who? We rock, rock, rock with the flock. Okay. We rock. We rock. We rock. I said we rock. 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 Welcome back, Donuts. Welcome to another episode of Friday Dough, your weekly fix of true crime. I'm your girl, Gina. And on every episode, I always want to remind listeners that the stories that I cover on this podcast may be difficult to hear. However, it is very important to shine a light on these cases and remember the victims who were affected. In the heart of Aruba, a sun-soaked paradise, two young women's lives took a bewildering turn, forever altering the course of their family's destinies. Natalie Holloway, an American teenager, and Stephanie Flores, a vibrant young woman from Peru, seemingly worlds apart, but connected by the inexplicable. So join me on a journey that takes us to the tropical landscapes of Aruba and the bustling streets of Lima, Peru. We'll unravel the enigmatic threads that ties these two seemingly unrelated cases together, secretly hiding beneath the surface, questions left unanswered, and unrelentless pursuit of justice combined to create a story that will send shivers down your spine. We'll hear from Natalie's family, who has endured unimaginable pain and relentless hope as they seek closure and the truth. So get ready for an episode that will keep you on the edge of your seat as we explore the chilling disappearance of these two women and the relentless search for answers. This is Fright Doe True Crime Podcast, and this is Lost and Found in Aruba, the Natalie Holloway and Stephanie Flores Connection. Natalie was born Natalie Ann Holloway on October 21st, 1986. Natalie was the first of two children born to David and Elizabeth Beth Holloway in Memphis, Tennessee. At the time of Natalie's disappearance, Dave Holloway was an insurance agent at State Farm in Meridian, Mississippi, while Beth, she was employed by Mountain Brook School System. Her parents divorced in 1993, and she and her younger brother, Matthew, was raised by her mother. But Dave and his wife made sure that he was able to stay close to the family so he would always be able to stay close to his children. In the year 2000, Beth had remarried a guy named George Juggs Twitty. He was a prominent Alabama businessman, and the family moved to Mountain Brook, Alabama. Natalie graduated with honors on May 2005 from Mountain Brook High School, located in the wealthy suburb of Birmingham. She was a member of the National Honor Society and the school dance squad and participated in other extracurricular activities. Natalie was scheduled to attend the University of Alabama on a full scholarship where she planned to pursue pre-med. On Thursday, May 26, 2005, Natalie Holloway and 124 fellow graduates of Mountain Brook High School arrived in Aruba for a five-day unofficial graduation trip. The teenagers were accompanied by seven chaperones. According to teacher and chaperone Bob Plummer, the chaperones met with the students each day to make sure everything was fine. 
Jody Bierman, who organized the trip, stated that the chaperones were not supposed to keep up with their every move. My question is, then what were they there for? Natalie was last seen by classmates around 1.30 a.m. on Monday, May 30th as she was leaving the bar and nightclub Carlos and Charlie's. She left in a car with 17-year-old Euron Vandersloop, a Dutch honor student who was living in Aruba and attending the International School of Aruba, and his two friends who were brothers, 21-year-old Deepak Kalpo, the owner of the car, and 18-year-old Satis Kalpo. They said when they were leaving the club, they told Natalie that they were about to leave and Natalie just simply said, okay. My question to everybody is what happened to the buddy system? You're not leaving unless we're leaving. We're not leaving unless you're leaving. You're staying in eyesight of us and vice versa. That's how my crew was. Natalie was scheduled to fly home later that day, but she did not appear for her return flight. When they checked her room, she had already packed her luggage and they found her passport in the room. Aruba authorities initiated a search for Natalie throughout the island and surrounding waters, but did not find her. Immediately following Natalie's misflight, Beth and Natalie's stepfather, George, flew with friends to Aruba by private jet. Something is terribly wrong. I had to get to Aruba now. Within four hours, they were able to obtain a name and address of the last person Natalie was seen with leaving the club, and that's Euron Vandersloop. Beth stated that Vandersloop's full name was given to her by the nightclub manager at the Holiday Inn who supposedly recognized him on videotape. Beth and George and their friends went to Vandersloop's home with two Aruba policemen to look for Natalie. Euron Vandersloop was born Euron Andreas Patrias Vandersloop to Anita and Paulus Vandersloop on August 6, 1987 in the city of Arned, an eastern part of the Netherlands, about 60 miles or 97 kilometers from Amsterdam. By the time he was 15 years old, Euron was already six feet tall, drinking and gambling heavily in the Aruban Casino. At this time, Anita and Paulus had already tried to have Euron committed to a psychiatric hospital because despite receiving $160 allowance from his parents, he would still steal money from Paulus and Anita. And he had become quite aggressive to his three brothers and others outside of the home. Anita and Paulus thought that the aggression can be contributed to him entering puberty at an unusually young age. Precocious puberty could sometimes lead to aggressive conduct in boys who mature sexually before their peers. His mother tried to push him into yoga or anything that could help him channel his emotions, but he chose drinking instead. Vandersloop enjoyed young girls, in particular American girls. He said American girls were the loosest of them all because they tend to indulge with alcohol, maybe because the legal age is 21 and in Aruba is 17, and that's not strictly enforced. Police Commissioner Gerald Dumpig, I hope I got that right, D-O-M-P-I-G, who headed the investigation from 2005 until 2006, stated that the Mountain Brook students engaged in wild parties, a lot of drinking, lots of room switching every night. He said, we knew the Holiday Inn told them they weren't welcome back next year. Natalie, we know she drank all day, every day. Come on now, what teenager isn't? 
they're in a country where 17 is a legal age of drinking. Oh my goodness. I'm so happy I didn't go to Aruba at the age of 17. Baby, listen. We have statements that she started drinking every morning with cocktails, so much so that Natalie didn't show up for breakfast two mornings in a row. Two of Natalie's classmates, Liz Kane and Claire Fearman, both agreed that the drinking on the trip was kind of excessive. Right, she was never somebody to be out of control if she had been drinking at all. When I think of excessive, okay, yeah, it is, that is excessive. This just sounds like to me that they are victim blaming. You put alcohol in front of a 17-year-old and tell them that it is okay for them to drink it. They're going to drink more than what they can handle. They're 17. And as always, 100% of nothing would never do the same thing. So Euron Vandersloot initially denied knowing who Natalie even was. But he then told a story corroborated with Deepak Kalpo, who was at his house at the time, saying that they drove Natalie to the beach, Harashi Beach, because she wanted to see sharks. They said later after that, they dropped her off at her hotel at 2 a.m. Finally, Iran said, I'll show you. I'll show you where I dropped her off. And he says that she got out of the car and that she stumbled and that she hit her head. And two security guards helped Natalie up. And he says those are the last two people that he left Natalie with. According to Vandersloop, Natalie fell down as she exited the car but refused his help. Vandersloop stated that as he and Deepak was driving away, Natalie was approached by a dark man in a dark shirt similar to those worn by security guards. Early Thursday morning, police had the security tapes ready from the lobby entrance where Yaron said that he dropped Natalie off. And as we watched the tape and the night turned into daylight on the screen, Natalie never appeared. Police Commissioner Jan Vanderstraten, the initial head of the investigation until his 2005 retirement, said that Natalie did not have to go through the lobby to return to her room. The search and rescue effort of Natalie Holloway began immediately. Hundreds of volunteers from Aruba and the United States joined the efforts. During the first days of the search, the Aruban government gave thousands of civil servants the day off to participate in the rescue efforts. 50 Dutch Marines conducted an extensive search of the shoreline. Aruban banks raised $20,000 and provided other support to aid volunteer search teams. So when Beth got there, she was provided with housing at the Holiday Inn where Natalie stayed in. And coincidentally, they gave her the same room that Natalie occupied. But Beth subsequently decided to stay at the presidential suite at the nearby Wyndham Hotel. The search for physical evidence was extensive and subject to occasional false leads. For example, a possible blood sample taken from Deepak Kalpo's car was tested, but determined not to be blood. On June 5th, a Reuben police detained Nick John and Abraham Jones, former security guards from the nearby Allegra Hotel, which has then been closed for renovations on suspicion of murder and kidnapping. Authorities has never officially disclosed the reason for their arrest, but according to news accounts, statements made by Vandersloot and the Calpo brothers may have been a factor to their arrest. On June 9th, Vandersloot and the Calpo brothers were arrested on suspicion of kidnapping and murdering Natalie Holloway. 
they placed Deepak Kalpo in the cell next to Nick John's cell. So Nick John struck up a conversation with Deepak Kalpo, not really knowing who he was. And he asked him, what was he in for? And Deepak Kalpo told him that he was in because of the missing girl, Natalie. And when Nick realized that if he didn't do anything, this guy had to do something, he just struck up a conversation talking about what was going on. And what Deepak did, he just basically told him his version of the story. Okay, so Deepak told Nick Johns that he dropped Euron and Natalie off at the beach and he went home. He said around 3 o'clock, 3.30 or so, he started texting with Euron and Euron told him that Natalie was asleep on the beach and he was in the process of leaving Natalie on the beach by herself sleep and he was walking home barefoot. And when asked why was he walking home barefoot, he just told him that he left his shoes on the beach. Throughout this conversation, Deepak never knew that Nick was one of the security guards that they were trying to blame for Natalie's disappearance. On June 11th, investigation continued, but David Cruz, spokesman of the Aruban Minister of Justice, falsely indicated that Natalie was dead and that authorities knew the location of her body. Later, David Cruz retracted that statement, saying that he was a victim of a misinformation campaign. That evening, Dumpick alleged to the Associated Press that one of the detained men admitted a six-person later identified as disc jockey Steve Gregory Crows was also arrested. Vanderstraten told the media that Crows was detained based on information from one of the other three detainees. They're just literally pointing their fingers at anybody. So on June 13th, Nick Johns and Abraham Jones was released from jail without being charged. And when Nick was walking past Deepak's cell, he actually introduced himself and told him who he was. Deepak then realized that he was one of the security guards that they were blaming Natalie's disappearance on, and he profusely apologized. So Deepak came clean with the story that he told the inmate and he told the authorities as well. Adding to it that Paulus told them that if they didn't have a body, they didn't have a case and told Calpo brothers to be Euron's alibi. On June 22nd, police arrested Paulus Vandersloot, assuming that he had something to do with the cover-up of Natalie's disappearance, and he knew more information that he was telling them. Both Paulus and Cruz was released on June 26th. At some time during the investigation, Vandersloot detailed a third account that he was dropped off at home and Natalie was driven by the Cowpoke brothers. Dumb Pig discounted the story, stating, This latest story came about when Vandersloop saw that the other guys, the Cowpokes, were kind of fingering in his direction. He wanted to screw them also by saying that he was dropped off, but the story doesn't check out at all. He just wanted to screw with Deepak. They had great arguments about this in front of the judge because their stories didn't match. Following the hearing before the judge, the Cowpoke brothers were released on Monday, July 4th. It is now that I ask the world to help me. Two suspects were released yesterday who were involved in a violent crime against my daughter. These criminals are not only allowed to walk freely among the tourists and citizens of Aruba, but there are no limits where they may choose to travel. I am asking all mothers and fathers in all nations to hear my plea. I implore you, 
Do not allow these two suspects, the Calpo brothers, to enter your country until this case is solved. Do not allow these criminals to walk among your citizens. Help me by not allowing these two to get away with this crime. It is my greatest fear today that the Calpo brothers will leave Aruba. I'm asking the Aruban officials to notify the United States State Department in the event these suspects try to leave this island. I'm asking all nations not to offer them a safe haven. I'm asking this in the name of my beautiful, intelligent, and outstanding daughter, who I haven't seen for 36 days and for whom I will continue to search until I find her. Thank you all so much. While no public explanation was then made for the cowpokes arrest, Dunpick later stated that it was an unsuccessful attempt to pressure the boys into confessing. But Vandersloot was detained for an additional 60 days. And that is when he came up with yet another version of his story. Natalie Holloway's family initially offered $175,000 and donors offered $50,000 for her safe return. Two months after her disappearance, the reward was increased from $200,000 to $1 million with a $100,000 reward for information leading to the location of her remains. The Cowpaw brothers were arrested yet again in August, but on September 3rd, the four detained suspects, and that's including Yaron Vandersloot, were released by a judge despite the attempts of the prosecutors to keep them in custody. The suspects were released on the condition that they remain available to police. On September 14th, all restrictions of them were removed. In the months following, Vandersloot gave several interviews that explained his version of events. The most notable interview was broadcasted on Fox News over three nights in March 2006. During the interview, Vandersloot indicated that Natalie Holloway wanted to have sex with him, but he did not because he didn't have a condom. He stated that Natalie wanted them to stay on the beach, but he had to go to school the next morning. According to Vandersloop, he was picked up by Satise Cowpoke at around 3 o'clock a.m. and left Natalie sitting on the beach alone. So we're fast forwarding into November 2008, when Euron Vandersloop was involved in the sex trafficking ring in Bangkok. He posed as a production consultant for a modeling agency and was selling Thai women into prostitution in the Netherlands. So this guy knew who Euron was, and before he decided to work with Euron with this sex trafficking situation, he got him in the car and he was talking to him about what really happened with Natalie Holloway. And Euron was caught on tape, admitting on tape of what really happened to Natalie. He said that he and Natalie was on the beach having sex when she suddenly suffered a seizure. She was unconscious, and when she didn't wake up, he panicked. His attempt to revive her failed. He said he then tried to shake her and claimed that she died in his arms. And instead of calling for help, he used the payphone on the beach to call a friend with a boat and dumped her body over at sea. And when asked how did he know she was dead, he just responded, I just knew. He said he has no bad feelings about it and is happy her body hadn't been found. I just think that I'm incredibly lucky that she's never been found. On December 18, 2007, the Aruban authorities officially closed the case. 
However, a couple of months later, February 1st, 2008, they reopened it because this video was released. But a judge still refused to arrest Euron Vandersloot. And when confronted about this recording, Euron said that he made it all up. I think I'm going to call him Urin, U-R-I-N-E. Now, in that same year, 2008, Urin was paid by Fox for an interview. He now has yet another disturbing story about what happened to Natalie Holloway. He was interested in me bringing him a blonde girl. Anything offered in exchange for? Yeah, he offered me money. And what did you say? I said, okay, sure. And later he retracts that story. Now we're gonna fast forward again to February 10, 2010, when Paulus Vandersloop, Euron's father, dies of a heart attack while playing tennis. This event provides Vandersloop with a perfect opportunity for his next scheme. Seeking financial arrangement from Natalie Holloway's family, on March 29, 2010, Euron sends an email to John Q. Kelly, the Holloway's lawyer, offering to disclose the location of Natalie's body in exchange of $25,000 upfront and $225,000 to follow. The lawyer accepted the offer and, of course, informed the FBI. About a month and a half later, on May 10, 2010, John Kelly arrived in Aruba with $10,000 in his hand to meet Euron Vandersloot. Euron accepted the money and he leads him to a house where he claims that his father buried Natalie in the foundation. Natalie's mom then wired an additional $15,000 to Euron's bank account, which is located in the Netherlands. And after that, Euron just go to a poker tournament in Peru. Later, it's found out that the house Euron had directed the lawyer to had not even been constructed during the time Natalie's disappearance, which makes it impossible for her to be buried in the foundation. Euron even admitted that he lied to the lawyer, which is not surprising. Oh God, I hate this guy. So now Euron is in Lima, Peru. And on June 1st, an abandoned car was found in an area known as a red zone with the reputation for drug activity and violence. The car was discovered to belong to Stephanie Flores Ramirez, but there was no sign of Stephanie. You see, Stephanie was missing since May 30th, 2010, five years to the day that Natalie Holloway turned up missing. So later that day on June 1st, a body of a severely beaten 21-year-old Stephanie Flores was found in a hotel room registered to Euron Vandersloot. Stephanie met Euron in a casino in Peru playing poker at the same table. Stephanie went back to Euron's hotel room to continue gambling on his laptop. Stephanie's body was found on a blood-soaked sheet. She was cold to the touch, so there was no temp test to be needed. Her eyes were blackened and her nose was crushed and nearly flattened. She had bruises covering her cheeks and chin. It was blood oozing out of her left ear. She had signs of hemorrhaging on her face, which is a sign of strangulation. Her eyes were protruding from the socket. Urine put his long sleeve shirt that he had on in the video when they were entering the room, soaked with blood on Stephanie's post-mortem. Rigor mortis had come and gone. Her body was now flaccid, which means her body was going into the next stage of putration. She had bruises and lesions all over her neck, face, stomach, arms, and hands, meaning that she fought like hell. And based on the examination, Stephanie was a virgin. 
Pathologists believe that Stephanie didn't die immediately. She died slowly. They believe that she could have still been alive when urine was washing the blood off in the bathroom, later to appear on the video surveillance. Stephanie's death was caused by a combined result of damage of the brain and cervical trauma due to choking. They thought the causing agent was a blunt instrument. All evidence point to a rage killing. January 12, 2012, Dave Holloway petitioned the courts to declare Natalie legally dead. And by the way, Beth was livid about this. After a big elaborate story about being robbed and dirty cops, on June 7, 2010, Yuron confessed to the killing of Stephanie Flores. He said they met while playing poker at 2 o'clock a.m. They played until about 5 o'clock, and then they left to go to his room, and Stephanie saw something on his laptop connecting him to Natalie Holloway. It was a threatening email, not by the family or anybody, so... So then they started talking about Natalie. He said that he told her that he was detained in 2005 for her disappearance. He then claimed that Stephanie became mad because of this. He said that she then hit him in the face and he then elbowed her in the nose, which brought blood everywhere. He thought she passed out and then he decided to start choking Stephanie with both of his hands for about two minutes and he stopped and noticed all of the blood. Because of so much blood, when the family ID'd the body, they thought Stephanie was stabbed. Then he took off his shirt, smashed it in Stephanie's face until he killed her, took a shower, left in her car, and dumped it in that neighborhood where it was found later that day. On January 11, 2012, he pled guilty to robbery and murder of Stephanie Flores and received 28 years and was sent to Pedreas Gordez Prison, north of Lima. There he began teaching English to the prisoners and received support by many females, sending him letters and everything. Lord, we gotta combat these negative daddy issues with role models or something. He received several visitors, one being Beth Holloway with the news crew and trying to confront him about the whereabouts of Natalie Holloway's remains. However, he just turned that visit into everything being about him and how he was currently suffering in prison. So we're going to fast forward one more time to 2023. And I just want to be transparent. This is actually why this episode is a week late. But I saw this in the news. Now, Yaron Vandersloot finally came clean to what happened to Natalie May 30th, 2005. Today, I can tell you with certainty that after 18 years, Natalie's case, it's solved. As far as I'm concerned, it's over. It's over. Yaron Vandersloot is no longer the suspect in my daughter's murder. He is the killer. In the course of his felony prosecution, here for extortion and wire fraud indictment, he gave a proffer in which he finally confessed that he killed Natalie. He described when and how he killed her. And he said that after killing her on the beach in Aruba, he put her into the water and that was the last that he ever saw her. That was all verified by a comprehensive and conductive conclusive polygraph test. Even with this confession though, he can't be tried here for Natalie's murder, but I'm satisfied knowing that he did it. He did it alone and he disposed of her alone. I won't give you the details of his brutal confession. Those will be forthcoming when the proffer is made public. 
You will also have details of the plea agreement which was reached, his sentence of the extortion, and the wire fraud will run concurrently with a sentence in Peru for killing Stephanie Flores. And that's fine with me. Thanks to a lot of very smart and dedicated people here, I got the answer I've been searching for for the past 18 years. Yaron Vandersloot's confession means we have finally reached the end of our never-ending nightmare. And for me, reaching the end of the nightmare, being over is better than closure. It's been 18 years since Natalie disappeared, and Natalie would be 36 years old today. I still miss her every day. It's been a very long and painful journey. But we finally got the answers we've been searching for for all these years. We finally, today, we got justice for Natalie. So thank you all so very much and being supportive of us in our long 18-year journey. Thank you. I just really want to say the strength of that family, Beth and Matthew, and even George Twitty, even though Beth and George are divorced right now, the amount of strength that they had to have to go through this for 18 years. It's over. The never-ending nightmare is over. And for me, it's better than closure. And everybody has their own words that they use, but that is mine. Over, to me, is better than closure. That's my nightmare. And it was a never-ending nightmare. I was never gonna get out of the weeds. I was never gonna get out of the rabbit holes. But it's over now, it's done. I feel pretty victorious right now. I feel like we've accomplished something that we set out for 18 years ago. So it's a huge weight is lifted. So it feels great. It's over now. Her murder has been solved. He's Yaron Vandersloat is no longer the suspect in Natalie's disappearance. Yaron Vandersloat is the murderer. He's the murderer. He's the killer of Natalie. So that is now giving me that never-ending nightmare being over and to be one that followed this case and know that it's been 18 years and actually see the growth in matthew did you believe what he had to say uh, i personally didn't uh, he's been such a liar uh this the past his whole life that, that's all he is it's just a, a psychopathic liar so i i take it i take it lightly uh i'm I mean, I believe he can, you know, his confession, that that's what we've been hoping for for so long, for him to actually admit that. Everything, all the confessions that he made, uh, did it all for himself, and uh, he forgot about one thing, and that was me. So he will be seeing me again when he thinks he's a free man. Matthew probably been training for 18 years just to see Euron Vandersloot when he get out of prison in 20-plus years. He gonna be all about that violence. But by this time, I'm pretty sure y'all sitting there wondering what the hell did he do to that girl? We started kissing each other, he said. I started feeling her up. She tells me no. She tells me she doesn't want me to fill her up. He insists. He says he keeps filling her up anyway. Then Natalie knees him in the crowd, she says. He gets up and he kicks her extremely hard in the face. She's lying down unconscious, probably even dead. And at this point, right next to her was a huge cinder block laying on the beach. He says he sees the cinder block and he takes it and smashes her head in with it completely. He goes on to reveal that her face was basically collapsed in. And even though it was dark on the beach, he could tell that she was dead. He says afterwards, I don't know exactly, but I was scared. 
He says he then decided to put her in the ocean. So I grabbed her arm and I half pulled and I half walked her into the ocean and I pushed her off. Right next to her, there's a, there's a huge uh, cinder block laying on the beach. When you say cinder block, uh, looking at the walls of this uh, place, is it like those? The exact same cinder blocks. I see a huge cinder block laying on the, on the beach. Uh, I take this and uh, yeah, I, I, I smash her head in with it completely. Uh, yeah, her face basically, you know, uh, collapses in. Even though it's dark, I can see her face is collapsed in. Um, uh, afterwards, I don't exactly know uh, what, uh, you know, I'm, I'm scared, I don't know what to do. Uh, and I, um, <coughs> I decide to, to take her and uh, uh, to put her into the ocean. So I'm not sure how the extortion charges work, but after maybe like 10 to 12 years of him already being in prison in Peru, he came here October 21st to face those extortion charges when he extorted that money from Beth. So with those charges, he got, I think, 20 years. So about 22 to 23 years or so, he'll be getting out and Matthew gonna be waiting on him. Peru's jurisdiction does not believe in the life sentence. They believe in rehabilitation and that's why he didn't get life for the death of Stephanie Flores. And he cannot face charges of Natalie Holloway's death in America because it wasn't done on American soil. I don't even know, and I was looking for this, is there a way that they can extradite him to Aruba so he can face charges in Aruba? I'm not even sure. All right, I just wanted to put these two notes in before I end this episode. On April 11, 2006, Dave Holloway published the book called Aruba, a tragic untold story of Natalie Holloway and corruption in paradise that recounted the search for his daughter. He never wanted Natalie to go on this trip. He was concerned of safety reasons, saying that seven chaperones just wasn't enough for 125 students, but Beth had full custody and she had already signed the permission slip. And in 2007, Beth Holloway, she released her own book called Loving Natalie, A Mother's Testament of Faith and Hope. I hadn't read either one of these books for my research for this episode. I actually read a book called Portrait of a Monster by Lisa Pulitzer and Cole Thompson. It's on Audible and it might be at the library because that's where I got it from. And it's a good book. So as we conclude our journey through the intertwined mysteries of Natalie Holloway and Stephanie Flores, we are left with the tapestry of emotions from hope to despair to even anger. From unanswered questions to the unrelentless pursuit of justice, these two women from different backgrounds and distant lands became symbols for the enduring search for truth. The pain and resilience of Natalie's family and their quest for closure is a testament to the strength of the human spirit. Similarly, Stephanie's story serves as a reminder of the mystery that remains hidden waiting to be unraveled. We salute the dedication of the investigators who tirely worked to piece together the events surrounding these disappearances, facing obstacles and challenges that tested their resolve.
Aruba's beautiful landscapes and Peru's bustling streets will forever hold a connection to these stories, reminding us that even in the most picturesque places, darkness can lurk in unexpected corners. As I conclude this episode, let us reflect on the enduring mysteries and the human spirit's ability to seek the truth and find closure. The stories of Natalie Holloway and Stephanie Flores will continue to captivate our hearts and minds and our family's relentless pursuit of justice will inspire us all. On today's Missings, we're featuring Arness Morris. Arness is a 13-year-old black male, brown eyes, 5'6", 130 pounds. Arness was last seen in Columbus, Ohio on May 29, 2023. He was wearing a black t-shirt, black pants, and black crops. If anyone has any information regarding the whereabouts of Arness, please contact the Special Victims Unit at 614-525-3555 or you can contact Crime Stoppers at 614-645-4749 or you can visit www.p3tips.com. Let's help bring Arnest home to his family. All right, Donuts, before I go, I just want to say what's up to my girl, Monique. She came up to me and gave me such a good compliment the other day, and I just want to thank her for all of that. I really do appreciate it. Sometimes you just need to hear it. So until next time, if you enjoyed this episode, hit the subscribe button so you will never miss an episode. If you have any insight on this case or any other case that I've covered, or if you have any case suggestions, contact the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Or if you like, you can leave a 60-second message, and that message might be on the next episode. All of the links are in the show notes. Also, before you go, please help support this podcast by sharing it with your friends or just simply leave a positive review on whatever platform you're listening to me on right now. Until next time, Donuts, please stay safe, stay vigilant, and please always, always, always trust your instincts. The jam. That's the jam. That's the jam. I reckon I ran. They like it when they do it cause that's the jam. I think right now what I miss most about her is she would be married, she would be a doctor by now, I have no doubt, she would have children.